Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Greetings, and welcome to What Happened to That Guy, a Ravens podcast about former players and life after football. I'm your host, John Eisenberg. When I started down the road of developing this podcast, I figured it would take me to some interesting places. I never imagined one of those places would be a federal immigration court in downtown Baltimore. But there I was on a recent weekday morning, sitting in the back of a courtroom on the fourth floor of the George Fallon Federal Building, located at 31 Hopkins Plaza, a few blocks from M&T Bank Stadium. The floor is a busy place with a bunch of courtrooms. There's a waiting room where anxious families sit with their attorneys waiting for their cases to be called. The dockets are filled with asylum cases, deportation cases, hearings about green cards, visas, The waiting room and hallways are crowded, really overcrowded. You hear a lot of Spanish. Serious stuff unfolds in these courtrooms. Matters of life and death. I was there for a dramatic case. Typical for the fourth floor, but still dramatic. The case of a woman who had fled gang violence in El Salvador, her home, a couple of years ago. A powerful gang was recruiting her son, and he didn't want to join. Fearing for their lives, the woman and her son had fled to Mexico and eventually came to the United States. Her husband was already here on a protected status designation. The woman was seeking legal asylum in the United States for herself and her son, contending that they'd be killed if they had to go back. The hearing was in a courtroom that was brightly lit and surprisingly small, with just a few rows of benches for spectators. Posters of scenes from America's national parks decorated the walls, Up front, dominating the room, was a large, raised, dark walnut desk where the judge sat, literally overseeing the proceedings. He wore a flowing dark robe and was bald with glasses perched low on his nose, and he spoke in a smooth, commanding voice, a voice suited for radio, honestly. Looming behind the judge on the wall was a large, circular seal, United States Department of Justice. In front of the judge, just like on TV, were two desks, one for each side in the case. At one desk, the woman from El Salvador sat with her attorney. At the other desk, sitting alone, was a lawyer from the Department of Homeland Security, there to challenge whether the woman deserved legal asylum. As the hearing began, the lawyer defending the woman stood. He was a trim guy in a crisp, dark suit, a little under six feet tall. He explained to the judge why a few spectators were sprinkled around the benches and back. Several family members were there to support his client, the lawyer said. Then he identified me, 
yours truly, as a journalist from the Baltimore Ravens. That stopped traffic. Baltimore Ravens? Why are you here? The judge asked. Everyone in the room turned and stared at me. Who was this strange creature? I kind of stammered. Um, well, there's a Ravens connection to this, I said. I was in fly-on-the-wall mode, not anxious to say much or attract attention. Fortunately, the judge didn't keep asking questions. Okay, whatever, he shrugged. So I know you're wondering, what was the Ravens' connection? Well, the lawyer defending the woman from El Salvador, the guy in the crisp dark suit, it was Chris Carr. He played cornerback for the Ravens, and not that long ago. He came to Baltimore in 2009, John Harbaugh's second year as head coach. He'd spent time with the Oakland Raiders and Tennessee Titans before he arrived, and he played good football in Baltimore, started 21 games over three years, made 108 tackles, intercepted four passes, forced five fumbles. Remember when the Ravens blasted the Patriots in a playoff game in Foxborough in 2009? Carr had a big interception in the first quarter to help turn the tide. Play action. Brady under pressure, throws over the middle, intercepted. Chris Carr has it. 28-yard line, heading to the far sideline, cuts back, and is down at the Patriot 25-yard line as the Ravens have forced a second turnover. Carr's last year in Baltimore was 2011, and he went on to play for two more teams, the San Diego Chargers and New Orleans Saints, before calling it quits after nine years in the NFL. That was in 2013, just six years ago, and yet here he was, wearing not a football uniform, but a blue suit, and not defending passes, but defending a client in federal immigration court. I mean, how did he get from there to here so quickly? Could the title of this podcast be any more appropriate? What happened to that guy? Let me give you some background. Chris Carr grew up in Reno, Nevada, and went to Boise State for football. We had a long chat recently, before I went to see him do his thing in court. I asked him when he knew he would become a lawyer. So I knew that when I was 20 years old, Boyd State players really didn't make it to the NFL. So my focus in college, athletically, was get as good as possible when it comes to my football skills. And at that time, I really didn't know what I was going to do after college. I had the attitude that if I can play... And then I felt that'd be great, but it kind of seemed that was a long shot. <laughs> but I took constitutional law my junior year in college. And once I was in that classroom with the professor and the way he taught and the papers that we had to write, that was the first time when I would get an A on an exam. I had a better feeling than I had playing football. I knew from that point on that I wanted to be a lawyer. And there was never any doubt in my mind. And once I got to my senior year in college, I felt like I was good enough to play in the NFL. But it was one of those things like, well, are you going to get the opportunity? He did get the opportunity, and he got it the hard way, making the Raiders roster as an undrafted rookie in 2005. And he wound up earning an NFL paycheck for a lot longer than he envisioned. By the time he retired, he was 30 years old, married, with a growing family, ready to start the next chapter of his life. He'd interned at a law firm in Baltimore while he was with the Ravens. And within a year of his last snap in the NFL, he was enrolled at law school at George Washington University in D.C. Yeah, I went straight into it. I'm the type of person I like to be busy. I like to do things. And it was the new challenge. And this is something that I've always wanted to do since I was 20 years old. So you didn't miss football? 
always like new things and new challenges. And so it was just something that was just so fresh for me and I enjoyed it. So there wasn't any second that I ever felt like, oh, I wish I was playing football. One of his first classes was Immigration Law 1. One day, the professor brought in a couple of GW grads who'd started a small firm in Northern Virginia that specialized in immigration work. The firm was Zeman and Peterson, and that's Rachel Peterson, one of the grads who spoke to the class that day. Here's Rachel. We were there to talk about what it's like being an immigration lawyer and having you know, a small business and doing removal defense, which is deportation proceedings and in asylum cases. And so we went to that class in 2015, I believe, and Chris happened to be in that class. I remember him from the class because he asked one or two questions and he just seemed really engaged. A lot of people are not. You know, they might be looking on their phones or not really paying attention. And so I did remember him. And he sent us an email after that asking if we were taking interns for the summer. And so in the summer of 2016, he worked as our legal intern. I mean, I mm-hmm. guess I should ask, are, are you a football fan? No, <laughs> okay. I'm not. Okay. I had no idea. No clue. He came in for an interview after he emailed us, and maybe Shira said something, my business partner, about he might be a football player or something. Then I Googled him, and I thought that he had played professional football for a long time, but I did not know that when we were first went to the class. Did he strike you at all as like what you would think of as a former football player? No. I hate to kind of generalize people, but all you sort of see is what's in the media or maybe on a reality show or two. First of all, for a professional football player to go to law school, I don't think it's super common. But then for one to be interested in immigration, that was what was surprising to me, that he was interested in immigration. How did Chris become interested in immigration? Well, he's always been an original thinker and a curious person, a heavy reader a big world traveler, not your stereotypical tunnel vision, self-obsessed pro athlete by any means. When he was with the Ravens, he drove an old clunker car, not a fancy one. And he eventually gave that clunker to a guy who worked in the dining hall. The guy needed a car. Chris just gave him one. His interest in immigration, he traces it to the football locker rooms he inhabited near the end of his career. It was 2012, and it was election year. Romney and Obama, and people were talking about issues in the locker room. I was in San Diego. We were talking about politics, and I was getting a lot of questions. People you know, wanted to hear my view because I'm not a Democrat, nor am I a Republican. Somebody asked me about immigration. I was like, I don't know. I've always been the type of person, like, if I haven't really studied or really know something, I'm just not going to go based on what's something I heard on TV. And I kind of feel like well, I should have an opinion about this, but I've never really thought about it. A couple months later, and partly because I didn't know, I read um, Ethnic America by Thomas Sowell. He's an economist. And it was just about the history of immigration in the United States during the late 19th century and early 20th century and looking at six different groups that came to the United States. And it was just really interesting to hear how their cultures played a part when it came to how they economically prospered or how they helped out America. So reading that book led me to really learning about immigration and the different arguments for and against uh, moral reasons, economic reasons, pragmatic reasons for it. 
and I just kind of got really interested in it. So once I went to law school in 2014, I said that might be an avenue that I might want to do because I would have a chance to be in court a lot. I can get to be around a lot of different people from different backgrounds. So ever since my second year in law school, I knew that I was going to be an immigration attorney. Rachel Peterson and her business partner weren't sure if Chris would be interested in working for their firm if and when he finished law school and passed the bar. But he was. He became a full-time immigration attorney in 2017, shortly after he passed the bar. He's been at it for two years now. I asked him to explain what he does. Pretty much all aspects of immigration law. So sometimes it's just administrative trying to get visas for people and trying to strategize what's the best way to get a visa. Make sure you follow all the steps. We also have um, litigation, so we're in court. And so that's a whole um, different ballgame that's more similar to sports because you're competing, you're in the courtroom, you're making arguments, and the government attorneys are there to try to deport your client. So yeah, I I get um, a contrast of high-stakes work, things that are very, very important. Sometimes I've been sure that if this person goes back, they're going to get killed within a year. Those are the ultimate stakes, obviously. I wondered if the nine years Chris spent in the NFL helped him now in any way. One thing about football that helped me, you're preparing like you're kind of going to war in the NFL because every game is so important. Every game could be the game that costs you a chance of going into the playoffs games are so close in the NFL. And your job's on the line, too, as well. NFL is the only league where all the contracts aren't guaranteed. And so in that respect, you're used to every week high stakes, high stakes. So now I've had these cases when I've been in court during final hearings. It's almost kind of like I've always prepared like this for almost 10 years that every week was like life and death. I could lose my job or um, we cannot make the playoffs if I make a mistake. Um, So dealing with that pressure and actually having cases where that actually is the case has helped me. Playing in NFL and having that pressure every week really prepared me when it comes to the pressure that one could still be in court under high stakes. I asked Rachel Peterson to identify the attributes that made her want to hire Chris, the attributes that made him such an effective attorney. She gave me a long list. He's always up for a challenge. He works long hours. He's a team player. He can focus under pressure. He has thick skin. If a judge criticizes him, he doesn't blink. I mean, do those sound like qualities learned in the NFL or what? You practice hard. You're part of a team. You get yelled at. Rachel's observation was that Chris's years of playing high-pressure, high-stakes sports definitely helped prepare him for what he's doing now. But her favorite part of Chris's story is that he had to learn Spanish from scratch to communicate with her firm's clientele. He's learned Spanish as an adult, essentially by just working really hard. When he was an intern with us, he would come in in the mornings an hour before work started and just practice Spanish. He had a computer and he would go to the library like twice a week to do like Spanish conversation classes. And now he speaks great Spanish. It's better than mine. His vocabulary is wonderful. He works almost all day speaking Spanish. And so for someone who didn't speak Spanish when he talked with us the first time, that's amazing. Chris played for five teams in the NFL, but he wanted me to know he enjoyed his time in Baltimore the most. 
And he wasn't saying that just because he was being interviewed for a Ravens podcast. When I look back at my NFL career, I consider the Baltimore Ravens to be the place at which I had the most fun, um, the place where I feel like I reached my potential as a player, the best organization, the best coaches, the best teammates, and really the best fans. So after I was released, it was kind of downhill after that. Baltimore was such a good organization. I had so much fun. I felt so comfortable in that locker room. The coaches, it was just really hard to go from first class, everything, to go into a different team. So I kind of struggled mentally with that because you feel like you're taking a step down. When I consider myself as a football player, I consider myself as a Raven first and foremost. Um, they're the team that I want to win the football every year. They're the team that... Um, treating me the best and where I played the best. His football career is something he can look back on with pride. He led the NFL in kickoff return yardage in each of his first two seasons when he was in Oakland. He played in 125 games overall, intercepted seven passes, recovered five fumbles, played a lot of nickel corner, slot corner, and played it well. He easily could have transitioned from playing into coaching. But there was one problem. A lot of people who truly love football they like to get into coaching when they're finished. Um, and they're usually great coaches, especially if they work hard and they're intelligent. Because of your strategizing, you're, you're really competing mentally and you're coaching and you're working with people. But I never loved football like that, so I knew that I didn't want to compete mentally and day-to-day to have that type of lifestyle because I just knew that I could potentially be a good coach, but I just didn't want to have the drive that is necessary to possibly move from city to city for with your family for the next 20, 30 years of your life and doing something that you didn't love. Just looking at him now, six years after his career ended, it's hard to believe he ever played. His NFL playing weight was around 185 pounds, but once he was done and stopped weight training, he immediately dropped more than 20 pounds. Now he weighs 160. And sorry, but that's around what I weigh. And believe me, no one sees me walking down the street and thinks, there goes a former NFL player. When somebody sees me, they do not think football player. When I was done, I had to get a whole new wardrobe and then my clothes fit. <laughs> um, so, so now, even when people find out, like different parents in my kid's school or, or anything like that, they're just like, you? <laughs> you did? How? How? <laughs> Especially um, due to my size, people don't even... It can't even register. On the day I went to watch him in court and wound up having to tell the judge there was a Ravens connection to the hearing, the judge had absolutely no clue that the connection was an attorney standing right in front of him. And that hearing, by the way, it went well for Chris. The judge complimented him a couple of times on the thoroughness of the legal brief he'd prepared, basically the written version of his argument. Your brief was excellent, the judge said. Nice to hear, I'm sure. From the outset, it was clear the judge was sympathetic to Chris's client, believed her story, and the fact that she and her son could be in danger if they had to return to El Salvador. The judge also seemed irritated by the government attorney, spoke harshly to him several times. I won't get into it, but there are specific benchmarks a person must meet to receive legal asylum. And after several hours of testimony, the judge announced he planned to rule for Chris's client. But he wanted the verdict to stand on appeal, which he figured was coming So he asked Chris and the government attorney to submit their closing arguments in writing, a process that would extend the case for another month or even longer. When the hearing was adjourned and everyone started getting up to leave, the judge's curiosity got the best of him. He looked at me and he said, 
Okay, so what is the Raven's connection? I paused. Chris was up front, packing his briefcase. He spoke up. I played for the Ravens, he said. The judge's eyes widened. You played for the Ravens, he asked. Yep, Chris said. I played for them and four other teams. I played nine years in the NFL, he said. There was silence. Wow, the judge said, obviously impressed and incredulous. How'd you get here, he asked. Where'd you go to law school? Chris explained that he went to GW after he finished playing. Then he got out and started working for this firm, and here he was. Good for you, the judge replied. Chris nodded, all business, and headed for the door. I grabbed him out in the hallway. He was going to take his client and her family to lunch. Everyone was all smiles. The positive resolution was life-changing. I asked Chris if he could give me the short version of what had just happened before he went to lunch. I taped our conversation on my cell phone, by the way, if it sounds a little different. What just happened that he said he's going to grant the decision, but he wants to write the decision because he really doesn't want it to lose on appeal. Right. <laughs> no judges, um, they don't want anybody to, they don't like it when the other courts, you know, tell them that they were wrong. So he's going to really try to um, strengthen the case. Right. right. Um, but also, um, he gave me and other attorney a chance to write our closing arguments instead of making them in the court which is fine because um, we won on one ground and one argument, but I want to win on all the grounds and all the arguments because it gives us a stronger case if, they, if it does get appealed. We wish that we had an outcome right now and it was completely over. But as far as like, if you want to win and you want the best win possible, this is the best case scenario. Yeah. How long did it take you to prepare for that? Um, this this case, mm-hmm. uh, I mean the brief. I mean the brief is six thousand words, but a lot of research. If I was just doing this case from start to finish, and that's all I did all day and all morning, all night, it'd probably been about three weeks of my time. Yeah, so it took it took a lot of hours. So when you go to have lunch with them afterwards and everything, and they're obviously smiling and very happy, is yeah. that is that your pay? I mean, is that your payoff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's I, I it's been fortunate I haven't had anybody deported, but yeah, I know it's not over. But yeah, it's a very good feeling to win because so far everybody that I worked with have been really really good people, um, and I've really enjoyed working with them, and so knowing that I can help them get a chance to stay here in this country legally, it gives me a lot of pride. It makes me, it's a lot of, it can feel like a, like a parent or like you, you're just really happy for them. Yeah, it's different from like a player. Like you're, as a player, it's like you're more happy for yourself and your teammates and like you feel like, but I feel like it was like their accomplishment in a sense, so I'm just happy for them. It's, it's a good feeling. This seems like a good time to state for the record that I have no agenda with this podcast. I didn't get into it to make some grand social or political statement. I'm just trying to find interesting stories, human interest stories, and tell them in an interesting way. But as I've worked on these episodes, and this is number six of eight, by the way, I guess a grand statement of sorts has come to the fore. It's a statement about the population of NFL players, former ones, really current ones too. There are a lot of stereotypes out there, you know, that they're rough guys who play a rough sport, that maybe they've been hit on the head a few too many times, that they might be great athletes, but don't ask them to quote Shakespeare, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, if I've learned anything from talking to guys like Peter Bulwer, Matt Burke, 
Gary Baxter, and others for this podcast. It's that you stereotyped them like that at your own peril. You'd better be careful with that stuff. There are a lot of former NFL players who can quote Shakespeare, guys doing all sorts of interesting and challenging things. Chris Carr had a lot to say about that. I think with any profession, it's really hard to know exactly what people have to do to make it there and what it takes to stay on top and the day-to-day struggles. That's almost with anything. I do think people don't realize how um, smart a lot of NFL players are and how much mental preparation takes. Uh, I remember my first couple of years, people would ask me, what do you do until Sunday? I'm like, what do you mean, what do I do? You just like hang out until the game? Or I'm like, no, we have meetings and we get to study and watch film and go over our game plan and plays and make checks and look for tendencies. And it's, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that you have to do that. One misconception, too, I think NFL players or just athletes in general, is that what they've done and all their hard work and the mental aspect of the game of football, which requires more strategy, I think, than any major sport, at least in America, is that a lot of players are capable of going on and doing more things with their life after football besides coaching. I think people really should stress that more often when athletes are younger in high school and college because sometimes you know if you didn't do well in college or didn't graduate you're not going to go to a good law school etc so i think um what it takes to make it to the nfl to stay in the nfl the mental aspect of it and the intelligence of a lot of football players um i think a lot of people don't realize how intelligent some players are and how mentally tough they are i think i know the answer to this question but do you identify as a as a former nfl guy no i i a lot of times, I mean, I'll, my identity is in my lifestyle is so much different than the past that a lot of times I don't even think about the fact that I used to play. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so whenever I meet somebody, it's like I'm an attorney. And that lifestyle, and it's it doesn't even feel like I played in a sense. It, it's really strange. I have so many fond memories, especially in Baltimore and all the fun times in the locker room, being around the guys and everything. And it just seems like a dream. Like it, or like when you take a vacation to Europe and you have memories of it, but it doesn't feel tangible anymore because it just seems like it was a dream that at the time seemed vivid, but now it's really even hard to believe that it happened. And that's kind of how football is for me. I really try to think about football occasionally to really appreciate the opportunities that I had and what it did for me and my family and the people I got to meet and the experience that I had. I was very fortunate, very blessed to have those experiences. I do think it is healthy um, mindset, and this is the mindset I've always had, is that I am a human being before I'm a football player or a lawyer or anything else. And just to hold on to my identity as a football player, it can be kind of dangerous. And I think some players probably struggle with that. Because if that is your identity and it can never be let go, then if you're not involved with football anymore, it can be a really tough thing to swallow. You can find out more about Chris Carr's career at BaltimoreRavens.com slash what happened to that guy. He was a really interesting subject, and I'd like to thank him for speaking to me and for arranging for me to get to watch him in court. Another new episode of the podcast will drop in two weeks. And they'll keep coming every other week for the rest of the 2019 season. I hope you find them interesting. 
The first five episodes have generated almost 100,000 listens, which is very gratifying. The podcast is off to a great start. If you like what you're hearing, don't hesitate to leave a five-star rating or write a review. Also, subscribe to it so you don't miss any episodes. This podcast and The Lounge, the excellent weekly podcast from my colleagues Ryan Mink and Garrett Downing, are part of the Baltimore Ravens Podcast Network. You can tell people, just search for that wherever you get your podcast. Baltimore Ravens Podcast Network. And everything will come up. This is John Eisenberg. I'll talk to you in two weeks. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.